Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today by two very special guests, repeat guest and fan favorite, Will Hodling of Strive and Paul Freeman of, uh, of Entangled. Uh, Will, Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for welcome having back, us. Will. Uh, hey, Will, wh- why don't we start with you? Why don't you first define what is Strive and then we'll go into some topics around higher education. Wonderful. At Strive, we're building a platform to help employers easily launch, manage, and measure immersive upskilling programs. Uh, we believe that employers are the new educators, that they are the only ones who have a unique understanding of both the skills needed in the future, the competencies of their existing employee populations, and thus the gap-closing learning journeys that people need to go on, and we help them launch internal universities to fill those gaps. We're starting with management training and leadership development, and then plan to expand to other verticals over time. What's your mental model of of how you think about the space? I, I sort of think about it as we're, we're unbundling, uh, or higher education is a bundle of, of network, credential, and actual education. And with, with MOOCs and online education, we've unbundled a lot of the actual coursework and education has become somewhat of a commodity, and now it's about the network and credential, and we'll slowly unbundle those uh, o- over time. What's your mental model of how you approach higher ed and how you expect it to be meaningfully different in the next 10 to 20 years, uh, or will it stay the same? So, so I think I, I largely agree with your question, uh, your, your, the framing of your question, uh, in that there are you know, three fundamental components of higher education experience, and we've started to see those break out. But I think it really, you know, what will happen to higher education really depends on kind of which higher education consumer you're talking about. So, you know, there, 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 and there's basically, there's, there's basically two. There, there, there's one that's going to higher education with the expectation that they're getting the education uh, First, uh, you know, uh, uh, and and then maybe we'll find a job later. So that education isn't is sort of the core value proposition that they're buying. There's the other that is only going to higher education because they want a job, and they've been convinced that that is the best pathway to get there. And I think you know, in ten to twenty years, uh, the experience for those two two different consumers are going to look very different. I think for the consumer that it's sort of education first, and a job may come. Uh, you're going to find some change uh, in terms of the way that the experience is delivered, you know, some increased uh, skill component and career exposure, uh, but largely the experience is going to look the same. You know, higher education institutions for that consumer uh, have been highly resilient. Uh, you know, they've been around, some institutions have been around for 500 years delivering, you know, a lot, largely the same experience. They've gone through transitions in the economy before and they'll continue. Uh, the other set of consumer, you know, the one for which has been convinced that higher education is the best value proposition, you're, you, you, to get a job, you're going to see a very different experience, and it's going to be largely job first, then education second, and the components of value are going to be delivered, you know, uh, very differently. The, the education uh, will be delivered in time when, you know, people need it. Uh, network will be delivered when people can better leverage uh, their own social experience to use network and credentialing will happen at different increments and won't even necessarily be connected to discrete educational experiences. It'll be connected to when people prove they have certain skills. So, so what, what's going to happen to the, uh, so I, I understand that people are still going to go to Harvard. People are still going to go to Stanford. You know, I went to university of Michigan. It's, it's okay. Okay. School. You know, I guess let's pick a worse school, Michigan state. What's going to happen to the, like the philosophy or English major at Michigan State, like that consumer. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, uh, frankly, the, the Michigan, even Michigan State, 
is 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 a is a reasonably good school as it relates to you know there are four thousand colleges and universities so I would I would say that you know a Michigan State um, you know might 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 make the cut uh, you know sort of up wet, upper northwest Michigan uh, central which do which doesn't exist won't um, and you know I, I think about a, a a quarter of the universities that we have won't exist in the current form or function. Um, largely because they aren't 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 serving a a need for the consumer that they're out to to serve. Yeah, I think that kind of building what Paul said, as he said, there's four thousand colleges and universities, um, and I think that many of the non-differentiated, small, non-profit, private institutions are the ones that are going to be highly at risk. These are the places like Sweetbriar that we've seen, or or uh, Hampshire College that we've seen closing or at risk of closing over the course of the last couple of years. That segment of the market. Um, I think it is going to have a really hard time over the course of the next five, 10 years. I think the large public institutions, the Michigans, the Michigan states of the world, the private prestigious elite colleges um, will continue to exist uh, for, for a long, long time. Will you spent, uh, you know, five or so years at, at Minerva. Um, will there be more Minervas uh, that, that try to compete and they're trying to compete at, at the highest edge or they're trying to compete with Harvard, Stanford. Um, how, how do you see, uh, how do you see that playing out? And I've always wondered why, Google or Facebook or these companies that are hiring, you know, mega talent, why, why they don't have their own university competitor that'd be a pipeline for their, for, for their institute, institution. Yeah. So I think that on the questions particularly of will there be a lot more Minervas, I'm skeptical. I think that it is very difficult to create from scratch a prestigious elite brand in higher education. Most of higher education brand is dependent on how long you've been around for and how famous your alumni and how large your endowments are. It's not based on innovation and pedagogy, curriculum, technology, uh, or delivery. And so I think that there are not going to be a lot of people trying to compete with Harvard, Stanford, Yale directly. Um, I think it's much more likely that we'll see more and more places like Lambda School, which try to take a different path uh, uh, and serve a different consumer. There's a lot of people out there who are not interested in the four-year Ivy on brick wall college experience. And as Paul said, their goal is to go to college to get a job. And for those people, um, I think that places like Lambda or other boot camps um, um, I think are serving a great role and I think there'll be a lot more of them because of it. Yeah. And, and, and to jump on your question about, you know, why isn't there a Google, uh, university? Um, I think, I think there's some elements of, of that, that will happen. I mean, what, what Google has, what Apple has is that, that, you know, that universities like Harvard have had historically is just a phenomenal brand. And in fact, I just saw data that said that if you, you know, if you offered somebody, a internship at Harvard or a Harvard degree, 60% of them. Internship at Google. Sorry, inter internship at Google uh, or a Harvard degree, 60% uh, would, would, would actually choose the internship at, at, at Google. Um, so they will have the capability of throwing their brand away, around, and, and you're sort of seeing that uh, in, in programs uh, you know, that are re related to you know, degrees and uh, credentials. However, Google doesn't really have a huge incentive to create a university. They only employ 100,000 people, and the existing university system fits, uh, fills their need pretty well. They get whoever they want out of Harvard and MIT and, uh, and Stanford, and so there's really no incentive to do it. The folks that are more likely to build a university are the Walmarts of the world, where they employ 1.8 million people and aren't particularly well served by the university ecosystem that already exists, and you're seeing them get into uh, the degree business in partnership with companies like, like Yield and others. Yeah. So, so we've seen the, uh, the un we talked about the unbundling of education. What will the unbundling of credentials, uh, the future credentials or, or network look like? 
I mean, I think that there are going to be a lot of different ways in the future that people can prove their competency in different categories. I think that uh, in you're going to see it first in the technical field. So I think that Triple Byte has done an amazing job unbundling traditional credentials in that you can take a tr Triple Byte quiz and they now have, you know, I think a well-established brand among a certain a certain group of, of companies such that a triple byte quiz is almost, you know, high performance on triple byte is more meaningful than the undergraduate degree of the participant. Um, and so I think that, you know, what, what's first in triple byte doing it for software engineering, I'm sure there'll be similar players working in data science and in cybersecurity and other technical fields where both traditional universities are not great at teaching the practical skill um, and the, the um, shelf life of skills is really short, such that somebody's degree eight years ago from MIT is not particularly relevant to whether they're good at cybersecurity's uh, cybersecurity age thirty. So I think that you're going to see, you know, those competency hiring platforms like TripleByte become more and more popular. I think you're seeing Indeed, for example. I don't know how many podcasts or how much radio you're listening to, but Indeed even is pushing a lot about Indeed assessments. So I think that we're moving towards more of a competency-driven hiring ecosystem, which is going to take a lot of power away from the traditional signals of ability and potential of, of college, college degrees. Yeah, and I think you're also starting to see that in the creative fields, like Dribbble and other platforms for designers, uh, where people can put portfolios of work together. And, you know, again, it's, you're going to see the unbundling of, of the um, signaling happen in areas where the signaling hasn't worked particularly well um, as, a, as a mechanism for determining ta talent. And, you know, your, the degree at Harvard doesn't tell you whether you're a good designer or, or, or not looking at a portfolio does. I think where it's going to be toughest is in the areas where it's really hard to determine talent, sort of sales, customer service, you know, sort of an analyst. Uh, and I think that's where you're going to find the degree being the most resilient because it's tougher to figure out how you can have a skills-based assessment and really replace that. Um, I think in terms of networking, um, you know, you're, you're, uh, one of the things that's really uh, works well about the um, college experience as a mechanism for networking is that you put a bunch of people together sort of in the same level of vulnerability. You know, they're all sort of dumb college freshmen. Uh, with with an expectation that you know they all kind of know the same thing and they bumble around making friends that sort of last them a lifetime uh, of, of professional value. Um, you know what's tough when you start to create you know networking systems at scale is essentially you have a divided marketplace. You have essentially you have people who are mentors and people who are mentees. Um, and while you can get people to volunteer to be a mentor very easily, they don't have the same you know low bar for. Uh, allow, allowing their networks to be leveraged by other people. Sort of me the mentees who come into those systems have to be very prepared to ask the right questions and to access the mentors in the right way. Uh, and that doesn't facilitate, you know, that doesn't exist because part, uh, part of the situation is you need the mentor's advice uh, to help shape the way that you ask their advice. It's sort of a, a, a chicken egg um, yeah. type problem. And I think that's, um, you know, why we haven't seen more sort of network uh, systems work at scale. Uh, and, and social capital so is sort of one of the most resilient elements of our college education system that hasn't been replaced yet. Yeah, and yeah. I would say two, two brief comments building on Paul's. I think the first is um, in the unbundling of credentials, necessity is the mother of innovation, that it's not surprising that uh, there has been, people are looking for alternative signals of performance in a category like software engineering, where it is so difficult to hire people that you're saying, okay, we need to find, we need to find ways to systematically discover diamonds in the rough. Let's use triple byte and let's not 
hire MIT, Stanford, Harvard grads exclusively. Let's hire people who went to maybe slightly second tier colleges because they've proven themselves through this assessment. So I think you're going to see uh, um, any area where there is a really hard hiring problem, you're going to see people searching for alternative credentials. I think on the networking piece, I mean, you know, I would say, I would ask a question to you, Eric, like, who are your 10 closest friends in life? And how much of that is a function of the people you've spent the most time with? That uh, one of the things that college does really effectively is it has people, at least the traditional college experience of living on a campus for four years, is it just has an incredible amount of interaction in a short period of time that you just spend hours and hours and hours with these other people and you get to know them very, very well. And I think that there are ways to short circuit that network um, and that and that, you know, relationship development experience, but ultimately, like, you do need to spend quality time with other people in order to develop those trusted bonds. Totally. The, um, a couple of follow-up questions to that. One is, I'm, I'm curious about peer-to-peer credentials, um, and if they have the ability to be meaningful. Of course, they're hard to get done in an authentic way, but if both of you were to say, hey, who are the people that, uh, you know, you both have spent time with under 25 who are, uh, you know, mentally talented, I would value that you know, more over a Harvard degree, yet I don't have that information for you, uh, from both of you. And, and two, I'm curious, what do you think is the role of government here in higher ed? Like, you know, how much of it is, hey, it's, it's, it's working, it's just way too expensive, and is there any way in which that, that can be curbed or, or stopped or, or returned to meaning, uh, you know, reasonable levels? Yeah, for, for, for first question first, you know, certainly um, you, when you trust somebody, uh, you rely a lot on their recommendations much more than any other credential because uh, you know that person and you also their signaling is actually uh, more um, connected to your point of view. You know, you, you think this person would be a better evaluation of ta- evaluator of talent um, than maybe even Harvard is. The problem with any system of so, so far with, with, with peer-based recommendations how you, is how you not game the system, right? Like there's a high, high incentive just to like everybody because they're more likely to, to like you. Um, and so the, you know, I, I haven't yet to, I, I'm, I'm a big believer that there will be a product that cracks this, but I've yet to see the product that, that creates at scale an authentic mechanism of people to fairly evaluate people that there are their friends. I mean, it's really, it's toughest um, when you're asked to give feedback on somebody that you kind of really like that's in your social network that you don't think is particularly strong in a, in a certain area. Um, and, you know, the, 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 any system that's tried to make that useful for professional evaluation has yet to crack that particular, uh, particular problem. Yeah, I, I would say on the peer recommendations, you know, the um, single most consistently high quality lead source for hiring is asking friends who work at successful companies, who are the three to five people that I absolutely should do everything I can to work with from that company. Um, that type of recommendation from somebody you trust is uh, uh, like much more valuable than any interview you can do or any assessment or certainly any college credential that you can have. So I'm with you entirely, Eric, on, in theory that a peer recommendation system is the you know best way to unbundle the credential. I think that the challenge is exactly as Paul said. Um, how do you get past the gamification of it? Obviously, like nobody values LinkedIn endorsements. Um, nobody values the LinkedIn recommendations. Uh, you know, obviously you can limit it in some ways. Everybody's only allowed to give out five recommendations or things along those lines. Um, but, but I think that's, that's an important pro- product problem to crack that hasn't been cracked yet. And the, and the question about government is like, look, a government, the government has played a huge role in the higher education system. It's the source 
um, or at least uh, you know the 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 conduit of uh, of the a vast majority of the funds that that are within the system, um, and so it will continue to have a big role to play. I think first and foremost, the role that it 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 should be playing, and I think it does a woefully poor job at playing, is around quality assurance, right? You know, when you have a educational um, exchange, you're by definition dealing with an uneducated an uneducated consumer buying something from an educated company, right? That's, that's a huge opportunity for, for people to be taken advantage of. And clearly we've seen that in all sorts of educational initiatives in the past. Um, you know, uh, and I think it, the, the government, federal government, state government should be playing a, a, a profound role in determining, you know, what, whether educational providers are high enough quality to be um, to, to, for availability to consumers. That being said, our existing systems of quality assurance are entirely input input based. You know, they, they measure how many faculty members you have, or you know, used to used to measure how many books you had in the library. Um, they they they've yet to measure whether the the education intervention does what it was expected to do. You know, does somebody get a job? Do they perform better? Um, and without that, it really doesn't um, facilitate any need and doesn't allow for a lot of innovation around programs that might not rely on full time faculty or might not have traditional. Uh, libraries, but you know, the government focusing on output-based measures of quality assurance, I think, uh, quickly is really important because, because in any area of innovation, uh, innovation, you have a, a rapid, you know, a Cambrian moment of a whole bunch of different institutional types being developed um, that can't be measured just on an input basis because they change what the inputs are, but they're all consistent on what they're trying to produce. Um, and so, you know, I think if we're going to have uh, an, an, you know, an education system that allows for a flurry of innovation to solve the, the job market need of there being more skills available to, to more people, you know, quickly governments, probably more likely state governments, need to start adopting mechanisms where they're measuring outputs and then determining quality providers based on whether they perform. Yeah. And I think that I'll maybe not answer what's the role of government today, what's the role of government tomorrow and in the future. Um, I think that in the future, there will be a lot more learning happening, but a lot less of it will happen on traditional college campuses that, uh, you know, the shelf life of skills is shorter than ever before. So they say it's the average shelf life of a skill is five years. Average employee turnover is four and a half years. That's like three times longer, three to five times longer for boomers than is in millennials and Gen Z. So what we're going to see is in the future, people are going to be switching jobs more often and the jobs that they have are going to be substantively different from the jobs that they had in the past. And so there is going to be a need for a lot more lifelong learning and a lot more reskilling and upskilling either on the job or in, you know, transitional programs, you know, boot camps, et cetera, before they enter into a new industry. Um, I don't think that universities are particularly well positioned to be the providers of that reskilling and upskilling. They're not connected to uh, uh, the skills needed in the workforce. Their, you know, their, their faculty are not incentivized to train people for jobs. They're incentivized to research for the most part. Um, and they haven't done a great job of reaching working learners over time. And so I think that in the future, employers are really going to be the new educators and they're going to be the ones who are going to be, you know, upskilling at scale people for jobs of the future. And right now the government, um, spends the vast majority of his money not on workforce training, not on apprenticeships, but instead on the traditional system of higher education. So I think there is a big question in the future of how do employers and government work together to upskill and reskill employees for the, the types of jobs they need to complete in the future. And I think there's a huge unknown on that. Right now, you know, they'll give tax credits 
uh, um, for on the job training, but that's not probably as extensive as it should be in the future. Yeah. yeah. I think the hardest problem to solve in the where, uh, the government spends uh, their 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 money is the government is, is historically taken no position on the type of education you get. So you you know you get the same you can get the same amount of a title you know uh, loans and grants if you want to study you know art history versus if you want to study engineering. It's you know taking no position on the skills that the ec the economy needs in the future. As you start to imagine uh, per, more providers. And you know, funneling money through uh, companies or, or different providers, you know, I think the government's going to have to start taking a position on the type, the types of education that are actually needed for for the job market, uh, and that's a pretty hard problem because the market is 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 fairly dynamic, and and certainly the skills that you needed, you know, five years ago per per Will's point could be fundamentally different than the skills that you're going to need in fifteen years. Yeah, that, that's a good segue into uh, where is the white space uh, here, both from a uh, you know, people looking to invest in it, people looking to build companies in it. Perhaps, uh, Paul, we'll start with you. Uh, you know, how has Entangled, uh, you have Entangled evolved what you're looking for over the years? Because education has traditionally been, uh, been a harder space. What, why is it, what, what's the why now in terms of the opportunity? And, and where are you looking to invest both at higher ed or, or future of work? What's your request for startups or things you're looking for? And then, and then Will, you're also investing, but in addition to building a company, I'm curious how you navigated the idea maze and, and uh, how you thought about it. Yeah, I like this. There's just a lot of white space, <laughs> um, and, and you know, education is you know is a multi-trillion-dollar-a-year category. If you look across, you know, cradle to grave, and and you know, one of the largest categories in the world. If you start looking internationally, and at you know, based on on some factors, uh, largely the ones that Will described around the the, the shortening half-life of skills. Um, there, we're seeing this whole ecosystem being stretched and changed, and new opportunities. To uh, being created, and there's a ton of white space. And in a multi-trillion-dollar-a-year category, a little niche market is actually a multi-billion-dollar category. Um, and so, I, I, I would say, even though that education has been a difficult category for investment, and probably not, uh, certainly not one of the best areas of, of return for for folks who are passionate about the problem, uh, and, and you know, I, I would, my advice would just be, you know, stay with it. Um, because, you know, I think everything that's happened in terms of education uh, to date has all been prelude. You know, the interesting stuff is coming now. And, and, and can you say more about why is that? What, what, what's the why now of 2020 where it wasn't in 2010s? Like uh, it, 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 so, so some some stuff is just in general, you know, things happen sl slow, slowly and then all of a sudden. Um, and we've seen this slowly and now it's all of a sudden. But it's actually we're actually just at the point where you know, the Band-Aid measures for you, you know, allowing the traditional higher education system to facilitate the need that it was asked for by employers or by consumers, you know, the, 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 the Band-Aid's not working anymore and everybody recognizes it, right? Uh, and, and sort of every, all of this conversation that you hear about the ROI on a college education or employers not getting, you know, not being able to hire people with the right skills, you know, the disconnect between, uh, you know, us being uh, above normal uh, employment, yet people, you know, still out there not looking for work because they, you know, have tried and failed to make themselves relevant in the job market. You know, all of this is, is, is happening because of a systematic shift in our society, which is that we've shifted from a production economy to a knowledge economy, and our education system hasn't kept up with that transition. But we will need an education system in a knowledge economy. In fact, we're going to need it more because people will need to be more, more, more educated, just full stop. 
and educated more frequently as, as skills change. And, uh, and, and this will require investment in a whole bunch of different areas and, and both sides of the market know it. Consumers know education is something that needs to be in, invested in. That's why they like, you know, attempt to go to college at such a high rate. And employers know that this is something that needs to be invested in, but they're just not finding the products and services that facilitate their needs. And that is a really strong signal for an investment opportunity. When you have uh, consumers on both sides of the market willing to pay for something, they're just not provide. They're not finding the service providers or, or, or the products that are that they're looking for. Uh, and that's a sign for an entrepreneur to go out there and 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 find a problem within that you know that sort of sea of problems uh, and, and build something that works. Yeah, and I think uh, to build on that, I mean, I feel it's like cliche to be on a podcast and say the why now is AI, but um, I will I will add that out briefly to say that I think that there we are in the early innings of a large amount of work being automated, um, and because of that, I think jobs of the future will look pretty different than jobs of the past. I think that the popular narrative is that AI is entirely displacing workers. And so you have the, you know, 4 million Americans who drive for a living are going to be replaced by automated, by self-driving cars, or the three and a half million Americans who work as cashiers are going to be replaced by Amazon Go stores. And so there is going to be a need for kind of mass reskilling programs. And I think places like Lambda or Guild have been very successful in building companies into this narrative and this why now. Um, I think if you look at uh, the research, McKinsey did a study saying that only 5% of jobs in the future will be automated by AI, but 60% of employees' work will be affected by AI. Um, and so I think there will be mass upskilling needed, programs that are less than six months long that are preparing people not for jobs of the future, but for skills of the future. Um, that AI will be automating tasks and not replacing jobs. And so the question is, okay, how do you prepare people for the new tasks that are going to be part of their job. And so I think that is a big, uh, uh, um, I think that's a big wave that's coming. And I think that our existing system of higher education is not really well prepared to, to prepare people for those jobs and tasks of the future. Yeah. I think the one problem with having Will and I on the same podcast is that we, we largely agree. I agree with, <laughs> with mo most of what's said and I agree it was a cliche to say it. Um, but, but, but the, you know, you are seeing a fundamental kind of refactoring of what, um, what, what, what people and, and machines uh, will do. And that's guiding a lot of this change in the education um, you know, system. And if I was taking the, the, the piece of advice from you know, sort of what, what I'd say to a learner or somebody going to college right now is I you know, spend a lot of time with robots, spend a lot of time with, with AI, figure out what they can do and then do everything else. Um, and you know, what, what's gonna be mostly important because one by one, we're gonna start to um, you know, automate the things that machines do better out of the human job. And as Will says, that won't, that will replace certain jobs where it's, you know, a kind of a, a robot or an AI does it better, but it will affect almost all jobs in some meaningful way where you'll have a hybrid existence and the machine will do some of the things that the job uh, used to do before. But there are fundamental things that AI, you know, doesn't do well now and likely will be, you know, decades, if not forever, but before they do it well. And that's where kind of, human education uh, need, it needs to be more, more focused on. And that's less about, you know, answering the question. If you know, what a, you know, if you know the question, um, you know, you could largely, with, with big data, automate the answer. Uh, but, but machines aren't very good at asking the unasked question. And that's where human curiosity, you know, uh, human intuition is, is more important. And, you know, uh, a, there will be a increase, it, while a lot of the times we talk about education of the future, we talk about sort of the discrete skills that you need to, to, to know 
Um, equally important, if not more important in the long run, will be the capabilities that you need to know and enhancing you know, the uniquely human skills uh, uh, because that's essentially where, where humans will be more valuable. Yeah. Is, is, is it fair to say that you guys are less interested in, uh, and maybe a lot of companies failed, uh, for, for reasons that they were trying to serve the, you know, sort of uh, sell to existing universities and K through 12 institutions are more sustaining uh, than disruptive as opposed to, aside from Clever and a few others, but as, uh, as opposed to companies that are trying to uh, own the education experience for the consumer or provide a like full stack solution for the, uh, for the employer. Uh, um, yeah. I mean, I think that uh, in another, in another podcast cliche, I'll start talking my own book, but um, I think that the, Innovation in this category will happen from the outside in. I don't think that the path to innovation is to partner with existing universities or the K-12 school districts. The bureaucracy, the you know entrenched interests, et cetera, make it very hard for them to launch something new and innovative. I think instead, the most innovative approaches are going to be going direct to consumer or partnering with university, uh, sorry, partnering with employers to help prepare them. Again, they have a very clear vested interest in upskilling employees that they're their skills are relevant for the jobs of the future. And I think that employers don't have a, a number of great options today. I think that, you know, they can rely on their internal L&D. I think that L&D is um, historically under-resourced and understaffed uh, by companies. I think that employees don't trust their L&D departments. I think the NPS for L&D is negative 25 uh, by employees. 80% of corporate executives say that their L&D departments aren't innovative enough. So I think instead, um, employers are going to need to partner with innovative providers, places like Guild, hopefully places like Strive that I started to provide innovative programs, innovative learning journeys and experiences to upskill their employees. I think if you look at like Coursera or Udacity, they have both made a, a lot of work. They have both invested in partnering with employers more and more to train that population for uh, the kind of jobs of the future. Yeah, I wouldn't. I, 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 I wouldn't totally agree with that. I, I agree uh, about the level of bureaucracy and the diff you know, universities make themselves extremely difficult partners. Um, uh, and it's, it, you know, it takes a long time to get the deals, deals done. There's a lot of politics around maintaining them. Uh, that being said, they still have massive brands and they still have distribution capability. Uh, and so I wouldn't discount, you know, some level of sustaining innovation. You know, Will gave an example before about, um, you know, the existing universities not being connected enough with the workforce to be the best um, at figuring out like like lifelong learning programs. Well, that's an opportunity for for partnership because the Harvard brand is still going to be much more credible amongst employers and hiring managers than any new new startup. And to some extent, it's worth the pain of the the sales cycle and the pain of the bureaucracy if you can come up with a mechanism where your lifelong learning platform is endorsed by Harvard and its its massive brand. Uh, so I, I, you know, I, I wouldn't discount the the opportunities for sustaining innovation as well. Although I agree that um, it, you will see uh, a lot of uh, disruptors um, coming in and doing things that universities historically did and doing it outside the system, doing it directly with with companies. And to some extent, that disruption, that pressure from the outside, in in my opinion, will make universities. Uh, more likely to be willing to partner and will lower some of their skepticism just out of desperation. Yeah, I, I agree with the comment that the universities still have incredibly trusted brands and they're among those trusted brands in the, in the world. Um, I, I, I wonder though, going back to your earlier argument about, you know, Walmart creating their own university, would Walmart be better served? Or, 
by creating their own university with the Walmart brand to train their internal employees or to partner with the University of Arkansas. Um, I, my bet is that their employees would actually tr trust Walmart more than the University of Arkansas to create upskilling programs because Walmart is the only one who knows exactly what skills they'll need in the future and they're the only ones who uh, can guarantee a job at the outcome uh, at, at the end of the program. So I think it's, um, you know, I think it's like saying the university brands are super valuable, makes sense when you give a couple of universities as the example, but um, I think that these employer brands actually are really powerful as well and I think their employees trust them. Yeah, but were that true, I think that Walmart would only carry Walmart products on Walmart shelves, right? Like what would the Walmart, uh, the, the, its, its business model itself recognizes the power of brands. Um, however, Walmart has generics, right? Yeah. And I actually think that that's where you're going to see, um, you'll see an interplay between the two. So I, I don't, it, it'll depend on the particular, what particularly is being taught. But, but, but certainly there'll be things where the University of Arkansas or like institutions will be deemed more credible. And for a long time, uh, you know, it, uh, they will be the better facilitator of that educational program because, uh, you know, signaling matters so much in, 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 in education and trust matters so much in education. And there'll be places where people believe that Walmart is actually the expert. You know, you would, I, would, I would imagine that Walmart's probably has better understanding of supply chain management than anybody in the world. Uh, and if I was going to learn supply chain, why not put the Walmart credential on, yeah. on that? They have both the skill and, and the credibility. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can, you, can either of you name one to two sort of subsectors that you are either investing in or interested in investing in as, a, as an example for, for entrepreneurs and investors out there? I think uh, uh, I'll name two, two topics that I think are really interesting. One is peer learning. So there's a company called Microverse, which uh, I did a small angel investment in, and they are connecting really driven, ambitious, intelligent people around the world who don't have access to first-rate engineering education. So they're primarily focused on emerging markets. And uh, they are connecting them to have them teach each other uh, uh, intro to computer science so they can get entry-level web developer jobs remotely. Um, I think that people like learning. You know, learning is a fundamentally uh, human endeavor. People like learning with and from other people. Um, I think that we've seen with Coursera and Udacity, the completion rates of just watch a video and take a quiz are really low. And so I'm really excited about social learning where we use communities of connections to generate commitment. I think that there's a lot that the learning ecosystem can learn from the success of behavior change organizations like Alcoholics Anonymous or Weight Watchers or, you know, the tech example of like Omada Health or Peloton. How can we use connections to other people to um, improve the learning journey and in particular the commitment to that learning? So I think that's one category I'm interested in. And then if the second category is the competency-based hiring approach. Um, so I think that, as I said earlier, Triple Byte, I think has done a great job to systematically identify kind of high potential, lower credential candidates and place them into um, impressive jobs at growing tech companies. And maybe Triple Byte will be Triple Byte for data science, uh, but there'll probably be another Triple Byte for data science and another tri Triple Byte for um, design and, and other technical skills that our candidates are in short supply and companies are hungry to try something new. Yeah, I would plus one to both of those and then add a third, which is, you know, I'm, 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 I'm looking for kind of the first big business that's focused on 
you know, direct out of high school, you know, corporate placement, right? So a lot of the things that you, that we've talked about have, you know, even, even the guilds of the world are depending on somebody having, you know, five to seven years of experience, you know, finding a job at a company and then having exposure to, you know, certain educational programs. The vast majority of the lambdas and the general assemblies of the world that were boot camp programs were focused on, you know, 25 year old plus, um, you know, folks. Uh, and I think there's a, there, there's, a, there's a lot of consumer demand for getting an alternative to college that starts when you're leaving high school. And, and the reality is the only product that exists for that right now is the military. Um, so you know, I'm, what I'm, I'm, I'm expecting to see you know, organizations that have figured out how to gainfully employ, employ folks right out of high school, you know, provide them with a living wage, but also ladder in educational experiences that prepare them for the future. My, uh, my guests today have been Will Hodling and Paul Friedman. Will, Paul, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Absolutely. Thank you. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 